grab a seat. Let me just say welcome to all of you and a special welcome to our guests and anyone that hasn't been here previously. Great to see you on this beautiful chilly morning, but then uh, we're tough up here in New England. We can handle anything, uh, almost anything. Okay, so welcome. Uh, Pastor Demi uh, and the family are not well. They have the flu. And so uh, we have a special person coming today to share from the pulpit. It's Edgardo Rosa from the First Baptist Church in Sudbury, Mass. He's been here before and want to welcome him back. And matter of fact, uh, the whole family is here, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, so don't forget to say hi to them at some point in time. But really good to see you this morning. A couple of announcements. Uh, many of you uh, have heard these before. I'll give a fresh spin to them, but they're also covered by bullet and inserts. But one of the things that our church has done over the decades is to have a Christmas card exchange in the form of a mailbox down in the fellowship hall. And if you feel so compelled, you can share Christmas cards with fellow friends here in the congregation. The reason that it was done that way originally was that you would save some postage. However, the postage that you saved was to be converted to a donation to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And so it wasn't so much a matter of uh, being cheap. It was a matter of praising God in an alternative way. And so uh, as you think about what you are able to give this year to the annual Lottie Moon Christmas offering, uh, let me just encourage you to use the special envelope that's in your bulletin or in the back of the room. And so... Now, we've set a goal as a church of $2,022, one dollar for every year since uh, the beginning of time. So, uh, so uh, just think about that, um, and we'll be tracking our progress toward that goal through a special chart that's in the back on the slat wall. But I want you to recognize that 100% of everything that is given to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering goes to the mission field. None of it is uh, <clears throat> skimmed off for administrative overhead. It all goes to the field. And these are for international missionaries working all around the world. Very important uh, function they do in proclaiming the gospel to people that are in dire need of hearing it. And so uh, keep that in mind as you prepare for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which will be extended into the first two weeks of January. Uh, as you know, we'll be having a Christmas Eve service. We'll also be having a Christmas Day service. It's one of those unique years in which Christmas Day falls on a Sunday. So uh, we'll ask you to sacrifice your gift wrapping or unwrapping and come and celebrate Christ on Christmas Day. Kind of neat to do that in, in its own way. So at this point, uh, I want to invite the Garlingtons to come forward and help uh, present the Advent uh, candle. As you know, we light a candle for every Sunday in Advent, oh, excuse me, every lead up to Christmas, and we're in the third candle, and Dan and Kelsey are going to share some things. This is Luke 1, 34 through 38. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Angels are ministering servants of God. The Lord commands them, and they execute those commands. An angel of the Lord had been sent to pay a visit to the Virgin Mary and deliver a message from God. Notice how abruptly that visit ended. The angel did not linger. He did not remain to provide more details about the miraculous event soon to take place. The angel did not ask if Mary had any questions. The angel delivered his message. Message was accepted, and the angel departed. On Mary's part, she did not ask any what-if questions, or even what she might tell Joseph, her husband, to be. The only question she did ask, which is the most obvious question, is how can a virgin conceive a child? She simply received the news and nothing more. Mary submitted herself to the sovereign plans of the Lord and identified herself as God's servant. The meeting between the angel and Mary was a meeting between two servants, entrusted with a particular task. Strikingly, the story of Christmas is a story of servants, but there is one servant that stands out amongst the rest. Isaiah 53 foretells of a Savior who would come and take upon himself the iniquities of us all. The Savior would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and his very wounds would heal our sins. The passage identifies the Savior as a righteous servant. That Savior and servant is Jesus Christ the child to be born by the Virgin Mary, conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit. The story of Christmas is a story of servants, a servant angel delivering a message to a human servant concerning a righteous servant who is the Son of God. The Son of God would go on to submit to the Father's plan joyfully, lovingly, and humbly for the securing of our redemption. Because of what Christ has done for us through his birth and death, Let us humbly submit ourselves unto him. Let our voices be used by God to share the gospel with those who have yet to submit their lives to the Lord. Let us use our hands and our resources as instruments to be used by God to bless and encourage others. Let us joyfully, lovingly, and humbly submit our lives as sacrifices of worship for who Christ is and what he has done for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you've done for us in coming down um, to earth, Lord. Um, Though God became man, God, we just thank you for that gift. And Lord, help us to do that, to encourage one another and really fix our eyes on you this season. So God, we just thank you for your grace and for what you've done and for what you are doing uh, and what what you will do. God, we thank you and pray all this in your name. Amen. Church, let's stand and worship this morning. Enjoy me. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee.
Christ our Lord and King. His rule and reign will ever sing, that we will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Father, today, this morning, we come to you singing songs of praise. God, I, there are many ways to worship you, Father, but I am so thankful for this opportunity to be with the church, Lord, and as we are as a body this morning, worshiping you, Father, may you receive this worship. And I pray, Father, that as we understood the words that we were singing, proclaiming, Lord, these, these truths, Father, Lord, may we have been singing it with praise. Father, thank you for this time of worship, for this time this morning to be able to sing. But now I pray, Father, you may lead us into a different type of worship in prayer and in your word. God, lead us through your word. May we sit and be encouraged and edified, Lord. Um, 
may all the glory be to Christ. We praise you, Father, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. At this time, we'll also be dismissing our children to uh, the classrooms. I'd like to share a scripture uh, before we pray. Uh, we just sang about Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what an encouraging thing to think about, that God resides in our hearts. The Holy Spirit resides in our body. And Christ has paved the way for us to have that wonderful gift of eternal life. But that gift was not by accident. That gift had actually been foretold centuries before it arrived, or before he arrived. In the book of Isaiah, it, it talks to that point. But I just want you to be aware, as you probably are, that when Christ came, he didn't come to trash the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. And so let me share with you uh, from Isaiah a familiar passage, often spoken at this time of the year. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from that time forth and evermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, we come before you this morning in total humility, acknowledging you as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and our personal Savior. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for the love that you have extended to the world and for those that have come to grips with the reality of Christ and why he came, we say thank you. And Lord, we look at this time of the year as perhaps one more so than other times that we can share the message of the gospel to those around us, that we can share the gospel with those that perhaps haven't yet figured it out, and Lord, you command us to be able to share the hope that lies within us. And I would add to that that we would have a prayer that you would put people in our path that you want us to share that with. So Lord, may the message of Christmas resonate not only throughout the year, but also at this special time of the year. And we, may we be willing to share it both locally and here around the world. And we pray for those missionaries that are attempting to do just that in various countries all around. And Lord, we pray that we can continue to partner, partner with them in growing your kingdom. 
And locally, Lord, our prayers go out to those that may not be enjoying this particular time of the year, those that may be hurting physically or psychologically or for whatever reason. And so our hearts particularly go right now to Dwight Merrill dealing with the disease that's somewhat debilitating called Parkinson's. And so, Lord, we pray for him in the rehab center that he will be able to overcome some of the adversity that he's facing. And so, Lord, ask her for a special touch on his life right now where he is in that room down the road. And so, Lord, uh, help him to sense your peace at this time of the year and give him a special touch. We think of Bill and Ruth Shaw, both who have dealt with various medical issues and are right now quarantining themselves as they overcome some of those issues. And so, Lord, we pray a special prayer for them. Well, there may be others that have physical issues, and so, Lord, my prayer is all-encompassing that your love and your touch will truly be felt and be real. Lord, our hearts go out to our pastor and his family as they are confined as they deal with the flu, and Lord, may we be able to reach out to all of these folks and give them uh, not only season's greetings, but a, a, a sense of care and concern that is characteristic of people of faith. And so, Lord, we thank you for them. We thank you for this time of the year when the love and message of Christ is proclaimed much more boldly. We pray that our Christmas cards will say Merry Christmas and not Happy Holidays. Lord, may Christ be preeminent in our lives. So Lord, I, I just thank you for who you are and, and who we are in you. And we pray for Edgardo as he transitions here to the pulpit to share the word of God and the message that has been put on his heart. And may we listen with a attentive ears and open hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, it, is a, it is a joy to be back. I was... Uh, trying to think how many times I've been here, and I think this is my, my fourth time around, so I've done something right the first three times. You guys have not booted me out. Uh, and the last time I was here, we had our youngest, who is now in daycare, and we have a new one. So I, I don't know, maybe every time the Lord's I'm doing something. So, <laughs> uh, so it is good to, to be here. Uh, I, I sort of wish it was under different uh, circumstances. I don't ever wish Ademi has the flu. Uh, but I am glad that we he are here, uh, and we're going to look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. That's going to be our text for today, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. And we're, we're going to ask ourselves this morning, uh, why did Christ come? Why did Christ come? Um, and I don't know if you've thought about that, but the, as I thought about that, um, there, there are different reasons that the scripture gives us, but, but I wanted to know or sort of see, like, what was the opinion of the world? Like, what did they think the reason of Christ's coming was? So 
I did what anyone does in 2022. You just go online, right? You go online and you Google it and you ask the question, why Christmas? And as you can imagine, there are thousands of blogs and posts and videos. But as I read through, through these and watched some of these, I was taken back at myself at the question that I typed in. I typed in, why Christmas? Which is different than the question, why did Christ come? You see, what I did was I conflated Christmas with the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. Christmas and the coming of Christ are two different things. We have Christmas to remember and to celebrate. But the coming of Christ came for salvation. Let me say if I could put it a different way. If we never had Christmas, we would be okay. If we never had Christ, we would not be okay. Those are two different things. Now, Christmas is there to celebrate the coming of Christ. But the most important thing is Christ himself. I was just driving up, uh, and there's a, a huge sign sort of at the, at the border of, of Mass and uh, in New Hampshire, and there's this big sign that says, Keep Christ in Christmas. I'm sure we've all seen it. They're in bumper stickers. You might have them on our fridge. And the question is, if Christ was completely gone out of Christmas, if it became a completely sold-out pagan holiday, would it matter to, Christ, to Christians? And, and one answer is no, because the Christ is not impacted by the day. You see, the Christ impacts the day. So the why for why Christ came is different than why Christmas. Does that make sense? So what we're looking at is why did Christ come, not why Christmas. So with that in mind, let's turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, and we'll read verses 12 through 17. And it says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I have acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you hung around me enough, and I don't think four times for an hour and a half is enough, but you would come to realize that I try to 
end my prayers or end discipleship or in the midst of a conversation, try to have sort of these three clause line in some of my interaction. And it is, we want to live for the glory of God, for the joy of us and his people, and for the good of others. For the glory of God, for the joy of his people, and the good of others. Now, this isn't a, a, a sort of a, a concept that I've made up. I think we can have some, well, we're going to walk through the scriptural groundings, why I think it's there. But I've definitely been impacted and influenced by uh, John Piper, who has a catch line that says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But that line wasn't new to Piper. Uh, he just got it from Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards just got it from Augustine, and Augustine read it from Scripture. Right? We, are, we live for the glory of God, for the joy of his people, and for the good of others. That, so if you hung around, you would sort of hear that over and over as I prayed, as I talked, as I discipled. But so, so that we would see that this is a, an anchor in the Christian life, look at what Edwards wrote. He says, God, in seeking his glory seeks the good of his creatures because the emanation of his glory implies the happiness of his creature. God's respect to the creature's good and his respect to himself is not divided respect, but both are united in one as the happiness of the creature aimed at his happiness and union with himself. What Edwards says is that God can seek his greatest glory and our greatest joy in both of those things can go hand in hand. They are united and not disconnected. So what we're going to see in our passage is those three things. I'm going to argue that the Christ, Jesus, came for God's glory, our joy, and then the good of the people or the good of those who are around us. So let's start with the last one, the good, of the, the good of others. So Paul begins in verse 12, and he says, I thank God. He is thanking God for what? For the strength that Jesus had provided him. And he continues on in verse 12 that the strength was for the service for which he was appointed to. And this idea of Paul's strength to the ministry that he's appointed to is actually in display in Acts chapter 9, where we read, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus, this is Paul, in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Further on, we, further on in Acts, we're told that Paul, actually it says Saul, Paul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So, so Paul is thankful that Jesus has given him strength to proclaim the gospel for the good of others. And the good news is that he announces is that in Jesus there is eternal life. There is salvation from judgment. There is reconciliation on to the, the people who were hostile and now have peace with God. So the coming of Jesus Christ empowers his laborers to go out into a lost and dying world with a message of reconciliation, of love, 
of hope and life. You see, Christ came for the good of the world. Now, is this not what God teaches us? That even the rain falls on the just and the unjust. As Christians, we live our lives even for the common grace of others, for the good of others. Christianity isn't an individualized, bubble-wrapped faith that you get to just sort of become insular. It has to be outward. It has to touch the hurt, the loneliness, the depression, the guilt, the shame, the anger, the hopelessness of the world. The coming of Christ was for the good of others. So how does this shape our lives? How does this tangibly transform us? There's two ways that we can live our lives in light of what Christ has done to strengthen and empower us so that we can live our lives for the good of others. The first is to share the gospel. The greatest gift that we can give anyone is the message of reconciliation. Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians. He says that God has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. And I wonder if you just ever sat in that passage and thought about the God of the universe entrusted weak vessels with a message. Like, have you thought, like, God Almighty entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. So the first thing that we do is we share the gospel. And now the sharing of the gospel doesn't have to be like this. I'm not sure we're all called to preach from the pulpit, but we are all called to share the gospels in the spheres of influences that we're in. So if you're in school, you share it with your classmates. If you're at work, you share it with your coworkers. And the way that we can do this is by seeking opportunities that the, door, that the Lord is opening to share the gospel. So here, let me give you some examples. Sometimes we think that sharing the gospel has to be sort of this eight-step process of like, okay, I did that one starts with creation, then the fall, then redemption, right? Like, I, I got it all in. But this is how you can share the gospel. When a co-worker is mourning because a fam- family member has passed, you can say, the gospel gives you hope that death does not overcome everything. We have a Messiah that says, in me there is resurrection. You don't have to fear death. In our community group this past week, we were walking through Hebrews, and Hebrews says that he came to free us from the fear of death. For those who are walking in shame because of their lives, their sins, you can say, you know what? Luke 15, it tells us that there is a great and loving Father who will call you back and forgive you. And what I love about Luke 15 is it actually deals with shame and guilt. Because the guilt part is that the, the son says, I have sinned against God and my father. But the shame part, he says, I will come back as a servant. You see, guilt recognizes the wrong, but then the shame says, you're something lesser than that. And what does the father do? He just takes them in, he forgives them, and he clothes them because you're not a servant, you're my son. How many people are walking in shame and guilt? How many people need Luke 15? When someone is in lonely and depressed, feeling 
like there is no one around, we can say, Emmanuel, God with us. He does not leave you or forsake you. He does not leave you as orphans. He has poured out his spirit. Would you believe? You see, that's a, that's a different way of sharing the gospel, meeting the needs that is present than just saying, okay, I have a four-step process. Please wait. Wait in the elevator. Can I tell you? Now, you're meeting the needs. It's what Jesus did with the Samaritan woman. He encountered what was the problem, the issue with her. She was feeling like she was empty. And he says, no, come to me. I'm the well that will never run dry. So the first thing that we can do for the good of others is just sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then the second thing that we can do is acts of service. I think in some Christian circles there is a a great divide that divides sort of the gospel truths with the gospel works. And you sort of have to pick one or the other. And I just think that's a false dichotomy. That's, that's not a separation that the Scripture provides. As gospel people, we live out the gospel. You love others. You pray for those who persecute you. We have to tangibly love those who are around us. And there's a million ways that you can do that. But again, just seek those that are near you. Sometimes, uh, uh, so in my generation, the way that you cause change is you go on social media, right? And you find a platform that you want to back up, and you back that up, and you voice your opinion, and you feel like you have done your job. Because I have brought something into the conversation, and then you can log off, or I guess you don't ever technically log off because it's always on your app. You just open it and close it. But you never actually touched anybody. You never actually loved anybody. You just said, I think the pandas should get fed today. Right? Like whatever the cause is. There's like so many random causes out there, right? But what about if we tangibly loved people? What about if we saw a homeless person this, this week and we provided a meal for them? What about in this season of giving and, and Christmas. Uh, we, we did foster care. We had two kids come through our home. One was there for nine months. Another was there for six weeks. And one of the greatest joys that we have had is to know that this Christmas season, they're both with their parents. What we have seen is that if you provide space for the parents who are hurting and in trouble, the Lord works in them so that they can be reunited with their family. What about if you just took some time and became a foster family? I know that's a big call. I know that's a big ask. On our our drive here, we're like, hey, we ran out of rooms. Like, what do we do if we took in someone else? And we're like, oh, no, we got to build up, I guess. I don't really know what we do, okay? We send our biggest one to the basement. Who knows? Um, but, But finding tangible ways to love others for their good. We are putting their needs before ours. Would you? I pray that this would be a church that is not only known for its gospel truth, but for its gospel life. They are putting it in action. So Jesus came to empower his people for the good of others so that we can proclaim the gospel and display the gospel. That's the first reason that we get here from 1 Timothy, according to verse 12. 
the strength. But then the second reason is that Jesus came for the joy of his people. So turn with me to verse 13. And it says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Twice in this passage, we hear, I received mercy. Twice, but I received mercy. And twice, that clause, the glorious but, (laughs) comes after he has just mentioned his sinful life. I received mercy. The idea of God's immense grace and patience runs throughout this passage. But this is completely different than how the world sees it. I actually think I've shared this quote before here in this pulpit. But listen to at least one person, to how he sees the Old Testament and the Old Testament God. So this is scientist Richard Dawkins. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. First of all, he would get an A in his vocab quiz. Like, those words are huge. But he's wrong. He is wrong. This is not how the Old Testament paints I, I, uh, in this past month, there have been three sort of texts that have been just gnawing at my heart. Like they've left me repeatedly just weeping and thanking the Lord for who he is. And I won't share all three, but I do want to give you two of them. And the first one is from Isaiah 5. And it's just four verses. Let me read them to you. It says, Let me sing for my beloved My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? The point in Isaiah 5 is a picture of a, uh, a gardener. This gardener has cleared out the rocks. He's brought the choice seeds. He's made everything to let this vineyard grow. He even set a watchtower so that there could be no one who would come in and destroy the vineyard. He sees the vineyard grow, and instead of getting good grapes, 
he gets wild grapes. Listen to how the Lord, and the picture is that the Lord is this gardener who set up everything for Israel. And this is the question that the Lord has for them. He says, what more was there for me to do to my vineyard that I have not done in it? You hear him. You hear his compassion. You hear the weight. I have done everything. What more can I have done? That's not, even, that's not a vindictive God. That's a, that's a God who cares. I have done everything. And, he's, and he even says, come, come, O inhabitants of Israel, and tell me. And it's a rhetorical, because what do you tell God who's done everything? What do you tell him? There's nothing more he could have done. He's done everything. So you get this picture of a gardener. Then the, the, the second passage that I want to just point out is from Hosea 11. Now, Hosea gets a lot of limelight because of Hosea 3, right? Because of Gomer and, and, and Hosea going back to Gomer. But I think, in my small estimation, the best chapter in Hosea is Hosea 11. Because if you have read all of Hosea, it actually gets pretty bleak after Hosea 3. It's just a whole lot of judgment after that. And like, people are like, really love Gomer's story, and then they sort of just leave it there. But there's a few more, like 11 more chapters to read. And I think Hosea 11, for me, is one of the sweetest ones. So the picture here, I won't read it all, but the picture here is God, not as a gardener, but as a father. And this one hit me because I have two young ones, and I can really understand this. So this is Hosea 11, starting in verse 1. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. So it's God the Father. The picture here is the one he is calling his son Israel out of Egypt. And look at the the sort of the, the picture that is put here is I was the one who taught them how to walk. And I was the one that healed them. The picture is this God holding their hand as they're learning how to walk and they stumble and they scratch their knee and the Lord picks them up and he says, I will heal you. And then going on further, he says, my people are bent on turning away from me and though they Call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up. But how can I give you up, O Ephraim? And how can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. You see, the picture of the Father that we see in the Old Testament is not one that comes in wrath. One that comes in pure mercy and grace and patience. The one who picks up the Son and dusts Him off and says, I will continue to walk alongside you. And this is exactly what Paul saw. He didn't see the God that the Dawkins sees. He sees the God of the Old Testament embodied in Jesus Christ. He saw that even though he had sinned, 
but I received mercy. Pastor Dane Orland puts it this way, left to our natural intuitions about God, we would conclude that mercy is his strange work and judgment his natural work. But that's not who God is. His natural work is mercy and his strange work is the judgment and wrath. This is good for us. (laughs) This is for our joy. Because I don't know if you see yourself in 1 Timothy. Like, I think if we put our lives next to Paul's life, I think we could say, Paul, I have you beat. (laughs) I am the foremost of sinners. And it would go back and forth like, no, I am. No, I am. You know, I am. But it doesn't matter. Because what matters is that for the sinner, there is mercy. And that mercy is displayed in God's love and patience. So brothers and sisters, I just pray that we would feel the weight of that. That we would rejoice in the good news of that, that there is mercy for you. That those who are dead in their trespasses can be given life. That those who were in the dominion of darkness can be transferred over, as Colossians says, into the dominion of his son that those who were under condemnation in Christ Jesus by faith can say, there is no condemnation for me. That is good news. Now, if you're like me, you're you're saying, hey, there is nowhere mention of joy here in this passage. And, And that's right. Great, you have a keen eye for the text. But what I think the biblical authors tell us is that salvation is always always tied to joy. Psalm 25, may we shout for joy over your salvation in the name of our God. Set up banners. May the Lord fulfill your petitions. Or Isaiah 25, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation And then the last one in Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What do you do when you receive salvation? You shout out loud. You rejoice. Because the king has brought us salvation and not judgment by faith. So Christ has come for the good of others, for the joy of our salvation, and then lastly, he has come for the glory of God. I, I, so I, I'm, I'm the pinch hitter today. Uh, I, I got a text last night saying, hey, can you, can you step in? Uh, I got the flu, and I was like, yep, we're going to do it. But that last song... It's got to be God-ordained. All glory be to Christ our King. He is the one who receives all of the glory and the honor. So, verse 17. After Paul has given thanks for his strength and his salvation, how does it end? To the King of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. 
Amen. It's like Paul can't help himself. It's like he knew the Psalms and he heard salvation and he recounted his salvation. He says, I am going to shout for joy and I'm going to give him all the glory and honor due his name. Now, this, for us to see this, this is a complete paradigm shift for us. Because ultimately, God did not come for you and I He came for his honor and glory. And because he did that, we benefit from that. You see, we try to put ourselves in the center of the story, but the one who is in the center of the story is God himself. And he promised this. This isn't a new truth. He promised this in Ezekiel 36. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. He later on says, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you, because you have profaned. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Why did Christ come? To vindicate the name that we had so profaned. He came for the glory of God. And church, when we see God as the principal character, we can rightly see our salvation in the midst of that. We are recipients. Everything that we get, we received. We received mercy, is what Paul says. I didn't earn it. I didn't work for it. I just received it. It was for God to do the work. And and if we trust that God is working for his honor and his glory, we can come before him for his honor and his glory. I don't know if you guys remember in Exodus when Moses goes up the mountain and he is meeting with the Lord and then he comes back down and what are the people doing? They're celebrating the calf that they just built and he turns to Aaron. And I think this is like one of the most comical responses in the whole Bible. He asks Aaron, like, what happened? And Aaron just says, it showed up. Like, what do you mean it just showed up, Aaron? Like, it did not just show up. You took all the gold, you burned it down, you melted, you created the calf. And Aaron's response is, it was just there. (laughs) But in the midst of that, God calls Moses up and God is angry. You see, because God is slow to angry, but the text tells us that he is burning in his anger. And he tells Moses, I am going to destroy them and I'll start over with just you. And you know how Moses responds? He doesn't say, God, those are my homies down there. Please don't do that. Those are my friends. That's my wife, my kid. Like, I know them. I just, I just, they saw a great miracle. You split the sea. Can you not do that? You know how Moses responds? He says, God, if you do that, what will Egypt and the nations think about you? What will they think about you? You see, he grounded his plea, not in the people, but in God himself. What will they say about your honor and your glory? And that's good for us. 
You see, because we can take hold of the promises of God and say, God, you promised. You promised this. You can't fail your word. You would be a liar. I prayed this prayer about evangelism. I brought it before the Lord so many times. I say, Jesus, you said, you said that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And I just go before the Lord and I say, Lord, that's hard for me to see the harvest. Because people aren't coming in droves. People aren't being saved left and right. And I just go before him and I say, Lord, you said it. I didn't. You told me that they are plentiful. Where are they? Send laborers. You see, we can take hold of the promises of Jesus and know that he will bring them to completion, not only primarily because of you and I, but primarily because of his glory. And that is good for us. It is good to know that God's glory and our salvation is tethered together. One pastor talking about just redemptive history says this, salvation is the Lord's self-imposed obligation. Essentially, God said that he should be destroyed if he broke his promise. By his own will, the Lord made his honor contingent upon blessing Abraham. If all the patriarchs offspring were to miss this blessing, he would prove to be a liar and suffer the loss of his glory. The Lord did not have to make a vow to Abraham, but once he did, his own character bound him to bless the patriarch's offspring. It is God's character and holy name and glory that binds him to us, not anything that you and I can bring to him, but his own character, his own glory. So why did Jesus come? Well, Jesus came for the good of others, so that we would be strengthened and empowered to bless them through our words and our deeds. He came for the joy of our salvation, that we who were once sinners, dead in our trespasses, can be given life and rejoice, rejoice that we are now saved. But ultimately, he came for God's glory, to vindicate the holy name of God. Because God cares about God. So we must care about God to give him all the honor and glory. So when we sing songs like All Glory Be, we have to believe that. That all of the glory, not just a bit, all of it, not 99% of it, all of the glory goes to him and none to us. He moves and does things for his own glory, and that is good because we benefit from that. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that at your coming, we, we see the words and promises of God fulfilled, and it anchors our trust and our hope, knowing that the words of God will never fail. They will remain forever. Lord Jesus, we thank you that at your coming, your, the love of the Father was displayed in sending the Son. Lord, we thank you that in 1 John, we tell, you tell us that at your coming, you did away, you had victory over the works of Satan. Lord, but as we see in 1 Timothy, 
You came for the glory of the Father. And you came for the joy of your people. And you came so that we would be a blessing to others. So Lord, I pray that that would change the way we live. That that would center us in your story and not you in our story. I pray that we would be the most joyful people there is because we have received mercy. And I pray that we would be a blessing to others. That we would, when we would see a need, we would run to it and not turn away from it. That it would begin in the household of the Lord and extend itself to the good of others. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we can rejoice and remember you not only in Christmas, but every day for your coming. We love you, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand in worship in response of today's message. Amen.
Father, we, we worship you this morning, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we may be a people that show your grace and mercy, as we heard today, Lord, through the gospel, as we also have been shown that grace and mercy in Christ. May we find our joy, Lord, not only in this season, but always in the wonderful salvation that we now have in Christ Jesus our Lord. May all glory be to our King for His grace and His mercy. The Word of God says, as we heard today, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me has the foremost Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Church, God bless you. Uh, you are dismissed. Amen.